sorry to interrupt. Would you mind if I could quickly run over to my neighbor's house and take out laundry from their um, dryer and I'll be back in 10 minutes? Yeah, no worries. You go ahead. Um, okay. <laughs> please leave that in. <laughs> please leave that in the edit. Copy the call. and welcome back to the Europlex podcast. Uh, I'm Gabriel Hedengren and with me, of course, is my very good friend, Ewan Healy. Hi, Ewan. Hi, Gabriel. How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm all right. Obviously, preparing for a very um, unique Christmas week coming up, but um, still feel quite lucky um, about where I'm at. So yeah, I'm, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm, I'm yeah, dealing with all the Christmas news and everything that's going on and just Looking forward to a little bit of time off, a little bit of rest, even from this podcast, because we are actually recording this and our next episode before Christmas. These things will get uploaded and we'll be at the cutting edge of the news. You won't even, we'll be, I'll be asleep. I'll be asleep and you won't even know. It'll be fine. <laughs> and the saving grace of that, I guess, is that on this special episode where, that you're listening to right now, we won't have any news for you. Uh, so we won't be, you know, <laughs> a week behind when you listen to us and who knows these days what what will be going on like between christmas and new year's everything's changing so rapidly I, I just really hope everything's okay in the future when you listen to this i just really hope the world's still attached to itself and i don't know the netherlands hasn't sunk into the sea i don't know i feel like that would be a very 2020 thing to happen we just lose an entire nation into the sea or something i don't know Definitely um, 12 more days for things to, to crumble. Um, so what we are very happy about for this episode, which uh, will be a review episode of um, all the amazing electoral politics um, from 2020, is that our fearless leader, Tobias Gerhard Schmink, is with us. And he's going to uh, share some of his sort of favorite random stats and uh, inf info nuggets from this year. We also have uh, Matthew, who's Litifier, Bruder Mugati, and sat in his favorite chair and recorded a special Christmas edition of um, his Amazing History Corner. Uh, but first, hi, Tobias. Hey, guys. Happy to be back. How are you doing? Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. I'm surprised you guys invited me again because last time was just before 2020 started and then I was on the podcast and then 2020 started and we all know how that turned out. So thanks yeah, for having gosh. me again. <laughs> yeah, we had to we had to check in with everyone before you came back on and just to let them know that things are going to really start falling apart. Well, why don't we start off by talking about newcomers? So there have been lots of elections this year, you know, at national levels, um, regional level, local level, and something that I know a lot of political nerds love and that you know gets a lot of attention in the news or not is the emergence of new parties who elect new representatives to political parties across our lovely continent. So I just thought um, I'd ask you, Tobias, uh, if you have any sort of um, favorite um, new parties from 2020 that our listeners should um, should know about um, not saying you support them but that you think are noteworthy yeah before i start them i want to tell our followers we're also going to bring out a detailed youtube video about this um so subscribe to our channel 
And some juicy news would be for every nerd who appreciates that type of news. For example, in Croatia, if we think back in February, uh, we have the foundation of DPM Esh by pop folk singer Miroslav Škoro, who set up his national conservative party back then. And then just boom, after just five months, he entered the parliament as the third largest list to got together with other smaller parties. Or we think about, for example, Ima Takav Narod, ITN, or there are no such people, or there are such people. They changed their name, name actually, <laughs> um, in Bulgaria. Um, so that party was founded by the singer and TV host Slavi Trifonov on the 16th of February 2020. And it propelled itself to take the third position in the Europe elects polling average, seriously challenging the existing party system. Maybe the most prominent example of parties that de facto split from another one in 2020 is the center-left Slovak party Halas. Not sure how to pronounce it, actually. It means voice in English. And that split from the center-left Smear. The split was a little bit triggered by the power struggle between the two strongmen in the party, Robert Fico and Peter Pellegrini. And today, Halas holds 11 out of 150 members in the Slovak National Parliament. And as the year 2020 is coming to an end and the government in Slovakia is not the most stable one in the world, Halas is the largest party in polls, reaching 20%. So that's definitely quite juicy. Definitely juicy. Um, one thing that sprung to mind just now is this sort of, in my mind, not great trend of, yeah, I guess charismatic cultural and media personalities starting parties. I wonder where that trend started, right? Yeah, and it's always the pop folk singers who do some Balkan pop. Yeah. I guess that's a good recipe for success in politics. Let's see if I can launch a Balkan pop party in this country, see if that can go the Eurovision party or something. Um, a couple of newcomers that I was just thinking about, um, particularly for this segment, is there have been people, two, at least two, I mean, quite a lot, but of significant newcomers to politics who have entered you know, elections just as an individual, not as political parties, and you know, competed very strongly in presidential elections. And firstly, obviously, in Belarus with um, Svetlana Skaraskaya, who, you know, was an English teacher prior to the election, it was her husband who was the politician. And then once her husband got arrested, she stepped up and, and you know, won a, what we now understand to be a decisive victory, um, which is, you know, Belarusians are still protesting every day across the country. Um, so that's obviously, you know, a huge story for someone who probably didn't imagine that they'd be here 12 months ago. Uh, and, you know, meeting every European president uh, and prime minister across the continent, speaking to the European parliament, when she was probably just, you know, teaching English translating stuff back in January. Um, but that's how life goes. That's how 2020 has been. And the other one, of course, um, is Szymon Hołownia from um, Poland, who was a journalist and decided to run as an independent in the uh, presidential election and did very strongly in founding his own party, who's, which, is, which is cresting 10 points in the polls fairly frequently now, um, his, his movement Poland 2050. So there have been a number of you know people who've made a for themselves this year. Definitely. Um, and Tobias, I know you have uh, a party as well that, that we haven't really um, covered that much and um, in one of Europe's you know biggest countries. So it, it comparatively has quite a lot of institutional power, but people don't know about. Um, what was that again? I think it was in France. 
That's correct. Yeah, that's somewhat a silent, gentle giant, I would say, among the parties that were founded in 2020. It's called, and pardon my French, Territoire de Progrès, Mouvement Social-Démocrat et Européen, or the Territories of Progress, Social Democratic and European Movement. And now everybody will be like, uh, what are you telling me about this party? But this party holds actually 45 out of the 577 national parliamentary MPs. So that makes it the fourth largest party in France. And more about that, it's also the largest party on the left or left of the center in the chamber. And the party was created in January 2020. Um by different MPs that used to be with the Socialist Party and then supported largely um, Macron's party slash movement. And now they think, oh, let's do our own thing maybe. And they created this party. And I was told that the interest to create this own party independently from La République En Marche is to have control over the finances that are allocated to the parties in France. Once they're set up in parliament, they get their own funding. And internal sources also told me that there's also the fear that Macron might not do as well in 2022 as he did in his first election. So to get re-elected as an MP, they try to at least on some level distance themselves from Macron, even though they're still part of this overall Macron movement, they still support him in the national parliament. And it's not just this party which emerged, but there are several other smaller parties which emerged in the past. Clever, long-term thinking for those MPs. So I guess um, to move on, something I thought we should discuss is you know election turnout, which I guess is always used as sort of a, a temperature check on public engagement politics and you know the level of democracy. It obviously can uh, can determine sort of the legitimacy of of a system and a government. You know if. Um, if they have big support of the electorate or if there's disengagement. Obviously, in 2020, carrying out elections, um, you know, that's come with a plethora of practical challenges due to COVID. A lot of votes, you know, have been rescheduled and cancelled. There's obviously been, you know, a lot of postal voting that's been most sort of salient with the recent US elections. But in, in, in Europe as well, it's obviously uh, impacted a lot of these events Um quite substantially. Unfortunately, you know, I was, I've been looking through a bunch of stats for this episode, um, which has been a lot of fun for me personally. And looking at the turnout of sort of all elections in Europe this year, it's quite depressing, actually. Um, way too many are, you know, below even 50%. Um, and a recent example I thought I'd bring up that we've been talking a lot about in, in recent weeks is, is Romania, which actually comes down right at the bottom with less than one third of the electorate turning out. As we discussed with Andre, our, our colleague, this led to the country's Social Democratic Party, led by Marcel Chiolacu, you know, uh, getting a surprisingly uh, good result. They went into the election campaign with very low expectations, you know, having lost half of its support, according to opinion polls, um, following the resignation of uh, President Don Chiola, which represented the party at the end of last year, and um, the incumbent president uh, of the National Liberal Party, which is a, a center-right party, Ludwig Organ. Uh, was seen as the the strong man going into the election. Most people are expecting were expecting him to um, to carry on sort of smoothly afterwards. Um, in the end, you know, the Social Democrats there they did lose um, almost seventeen percent of their vote share, which is 
um, the biggest tumble um, at a national level um, in 2020. Not a very nice um, record to have. A lesson there is when turnout is really suppressed, that will obviously impact what voters actually are motivated to go out and vote and means that, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the polling might not be as accurate as it otherwise would have. And as Andre told us, you know, in this instance in Romania, it was like a double whammy of, uh, you know, a long-term decline in participation due to general distrust in politics and, you know, wide range uh, corruption that's in this case tied to the social democrats. Uh, and apart from Romania, you know, other disappointing elections were the ones in the Czech Republic, where it was just 36% in a lot of its Senate elections. The, the second round of Lithuanian um, parliamentary elections had just 39% turning out as well. So there are a lot of those examples, which is quite, you know, sad for people that um, that care a lot about elections and, and democracy like we do here at Europe Elects. I just thought I'd put a question out there for, for you both, you and Tobias. Like, do you think there will be a overall bounce in, uh, in election turnout uh, next year? Uh, do you think this is serious or is it just COVID? Any thoughts about the situation around turnout? I think COVID does play a significant role on why turnout dropped in many elections in 2020. Um, people were afraid to turn out to avoid an infection, and that really won't change in 2021, especially in the first two quarters. We see at the moment, for example, that the French regional elections have already been pushed again. And this also, if elections are pushed or if there are special rules in place, um, this can create confusion around the organization of elections and demobilize voters. Even if it's just cer certain simple rules, for example, bring your own red pen, and then the voter shows up with a blue pen, and then they difficult have difficulties to get this red pen into the ballot box, um, or in the ballot booth, not the ballot box. Um, it's just small things like these which are just demotivating. We don't want to spend our Sundays looking for red pens. You know, this is how, how simple things sometimes are uh, beyond uh, not getting an infection. And then lastly, it's also difficult at the moment for parties to mobilize and reach out to voters. They can't talk to them face to face on the streets, right? So this will most likely continue this low turnout, which we have seen in 2020, to continue in 2021. I want to add something, and I think this is really important, is that I think a lot of the European political establishment have found it really easy to be like, oh, low turnout, it's COVID, let's not worry about it. But the trends show that turnout has been decreasing aggressively across the continent for the last 20 years, you know, in, in almost all elections. And I think the Romanian example, yeah, it was really low, but that was also, you know, um, you know it's been on a downward trend since, since the year 2000, you know. And I think we don't want to lay too much blame at the, the door of the coronavirus because at the same time as we've had, obviously, a decrease in in-person voting, we've had increased um, voting by mail, um, and that's you know been a lot more prevalent. And there's a lot more people that diaspora voting and things like that that have um, increased in this year. I mean, obviously, COVID has caused a decrease, but I think... It, it, it will be letting politicians off scot-free if we just say, oh, it's just COVID. Actually, there's a much, much deeper problem in European politics of, of democratic deficit and people's disinterest um, in, in politics. And that's, you know, why we talk about those new parties. It's why challenger parties are so uh, popular, especially if they're led by someone who's outside of 
politics, in inverted commas. You're right on the long-term perspective if you look at the time period from 2000 up until now. But at the same time, we also need to acknowledge that turnout has been really high over the past, let's say, four years in multiple European countries, sometimes as high as it used to be in the 1980s. And that was largely driven by the immigration question. We have seen the rise of right-wing parties who were able to mobilize voters that haven't been going to elections for 20, 30 years. And now that the discussion has moved away from the immigration issue and moved towards health and the public infrastructure uh, amidst the coronavirus pandemic, I believe this has, again, demobilized those voters who were before mobilized by the immigration issue. Yeah, an interesting point. Um, I thought... Um when I was looking at the stats again, quite surprising, the election that got the highest turnout um, was actually the one um, that took place in Montenegro in late summer. In that instance, 77% of um, the Montenegrin electorate went out to vote, which was an increase on uh, the previous elections there. So they bucked the trend, you can say. And to refresh uh, our listeners on, on, on those elections, uh, they became a victory for the country's centre-right opposition. Uh, the previous president, uh, Milo Dukanovic, resigned. Um, and yeah, it was 30 years in power of, the, of, of that party that um, went into dust. Um, so you have those events as well uh, this year. Uh, I don't know if it plays in that it was summer and, and cases uh, of COVID were low and there was this weird window of time when it felt normal for, for a few weeks and, and that played in. Uh, but there are those examples of boost in turnout because of the um, political motivation as well of overturning a government that um, large parts of the electorate are, are unhappy with. And that's definitely the case in Montenegro, it seems. You know, it's been very polarized there. Large part of the opposition um, boycotted parliamentary sittings for the four years prior to the elections, uh, accusing the government of corruption and fraud and so on. And Montenegro, I should probably add as a caveat, is a hybrid regime, according to many observers, I guess, in the, in the democracy index, that's what they're labeled as. Uh, so in, in that case, you can, you can see that that's really a, an expression of, of democracy there. There have been a few interesting stories, actually, from the sort of hybrid regimes and, and sort of more authoritarian regimes in Europe of, of perhaps some, you know, deeper political shifts. I mean, uh, accepting... Uh, the Serbian elections, which were boycotted by most opposition parties, and you know where where it seems that um, the president was able to shore up more of his power. But like we've talked about Belarus before, but also in Georgia as well, where um, you know the forces that have held control over the political system and you know are, are losing their grip, you know, or you know things are changing a little bit. It's the same with um, Dukanovic, as you just said that. You know, if you'd have told me for four or five years ago that Dukanovic was going to sort of lose the election, I would have been quite surprised. And I think a lot of people were surprised by the way that that, that came out in the, you know, in the wash and the same in, in, in Georgia. So I think, you know, as while the Serbian election perhaps uh, was disappointing um, for Democrats, I think that the, there are some glistening moments of hope in uh, the struggle for European democracy. Definitely. Um, I was going to touch on Serbia um, for in our next section on sort of the big winners and, and losers um, this year. You know, we all love big swings and drama in elections, uh, and there have been some impressive ones this year. Um, but I don't know, before I, I go through some of the data um, for everyone, I don't know if either of you have some results that sort of jump out at you when you think of the 
electoral calendar of, of the last year? Any big wins or losses? Personally, I'm a big fan of Slovak politics just because the party political system is so volatile there. We have new parties coming up all the time. And at the beginning of this year, we had the election in Slovakia on the national level where Olano with other smaller parties just out of nowhere jumped to 25%. And um, nowadays they have the prime minister, even though sometimes he indicates he's actually not so happy being prime minister. Ewan? I think in terms of big wins, I think the the one that springs to my mind is 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 Iceland, because well, what an incumbent result, and when you only have a very bizarre sort of right wing challenger that um, had a very low support um, facing off against the you know incumbent and a popular incumbent at that, um, you know, Gudni Johansson was was going to um, win, but they won with quite incredible. Uh, states with 94% or whatever, you know, for the election result is very impressive, even for um, even for 2020, you know, even compared to some of the less democratic countries. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to just for for future pub quizzes for everyone out there. So um, we touched on Serbia. So um, President Alexander Vucic there, he got 60% of the vote in uh, in a parliamentary election, which is a bit suspect, and that it, that uh, can definitely be questioned uh, on what grounds he got that result. But that was the highest um, uh, result uh, in a national level election. Um, as we spoke about, you know, around that time, he has an iron grip of the country's media, big boycotts of the system, big disengagement. Uh, in fact, you know, the the, the party that came in second place, the Socialist Party of Serbia, received just around 10%. So really sort of a tragic mess there now. No clear path out, um, no legitimate opposition. Uh, but still, uh, given all that, that was sort of the best result um, for Vucic there, although it wasn't uh, democratically achieved. And um, interestingly, I guess, a lot of the very good results um, came in, in countries that are marked as flawed democracies or even hybrid regimes. The second highest result was Shiba Croatia, where um, HDC got 37%, followed by the We Can party list in North Macedonia, where they got 36%. So I guess it's in that region. I guess I should also say, I'm not an expert at this, but there's a tendency in those regions for a lot of parties to join into lists and run together to gain seats. So that obviously also boosts results. As Tobias, you mentioned the Slovak elections, they were numerically by far the most dramatic. As you said, um, Olano, uh, you know, had a huge swing in just the months before the election and uh, the Social Democratic Party Schmer lost 10%, which, well, it's quite sizable uh, for in a lot of countries, usually have smaller swings um, than that. I thought we'd move on to standout presidential elections. This year, you know, we had a few that really got a lot of traction with our followers and that um, we had a lot of, you know, fun covering, as you said, you and the Icelandic ones, um, what a dream result for the, the incumbent president, uh, Johannes Hon, uh, just to get the figure out there correctly, he got 92%, um, which is um, 84% ahead of the opponent, um, and not even Lukashenko in Belarus uh, could um, fraud his way to a similar result, which is quite remarkable. On Belarus, I mean, I think we that's something we can discuss more. Obviously, it's one of the most dramatic and consequential events in European politics 
um, this year. Um, you know, according to official sources, it can not to be taken seriously at all. Lukashenko got 80% of the vote uh, and um, Shikhanovskaya got just 10% in second place. Obviously, we all know that that's uh, bogus. Uh, you, will have all, you will all remember those big anti-government uh, protests that are still going on in the country. And more and more, I feel like... Uh, Governments and institutions around Europe are are linking up with with the big leaders of the the opposition movements there. So it'll be definitely be interesting um, over coming years what happens, whether the suppression of it will once again be successful, or if there's longevity um, there. I don't know if um, if uh, either of you have any thoughts on that. I felt like that was one of the most uh, important uh, events we we covered. Absolutely, I agree. Um, and it's still impressive. It's not in the major media in Europe anymore, but we still have protests going on in Belarus. And uh, we should definitely keep up the attention also as citizens of the European Union and other European countries that this is still ongoing. This is not over and this is not a fight that is lost against Lukashenko. Yeah, definitely, Tobias. I really uh, agree. And I think, I hope that in 50 years time, when you know we read about or do you remember when this happened we'll we know we will remember that this was the beginning of the end for Lukashenko and, and and the fall of his dictatorship really um and yeah i would really encourage listeners if they haven't seen the footage of the recent protests and campaigns worker strikes all sorts of things going on in belarus to to head over to um Freyver Korka's, um social media because he covers that every day um, and it's it's you know incredible to inspiring to see people waving the free Belarusian flag every day, even all these months after the election, and and uh, Lukashenko still clinging on to power. And of course, you can go back and listen to our interview with him um, back in August. Before we move on, I mean, we cannot not mention the presidential elections in Poland. Not all presidential elections this year, I guess, um, had margins of 60, 70, 80%. We had some um, very tight, exciting ones um, as well. And the ones in Poland definitely for us, you know, drove the most interest, uh, I guess, partly because of the polarized nature of it. They're also like, as I remember, they were just a gazillion polls in the lead up, which obviously for us is great. So much content for um, for you all to, to engage with. And when it's tight, you know, 50, 49, uh, um, a lot of fun for, um, for nerds like us. Um, so just to recap, I guess, following a first round of elections, there was this intense runoff, of course, with uh, between the right wing Andrzej Duda, who officially ran as an independent candidate, but really not very independent. Uh, he is um, representative of the Law and Justice Party. Uh, and then he ran against the liberal candidate, um, Rafał uh, Jaskowski. And in the end, it turned into this nail biter with the polls going in both directions, as I said. Uh, but Duda pull out and win in the end with 51 uh, versus 49%. Given how big that event was for us, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have any, have thoughts on, on what happened in Poland this year. There's still, I mean, a lot of protest, protests going on there as well against uh, against the, the regime that pulled out the win earlier this year with Duda. This year's election in Poland have really shown that peace can be beaten, even though it was not beaten. But um, it was super tight. 
and what we saw after the election was almost more interesting because over the course of the coronavirus pandemic that after the election hit Poland pretty hard and also some other stuff like, for example, the abortion a decision by the highest court in the country, we saw some major protest movements and not just that, but peace collapsed in polls. We saw that peace at the moment, if there was an election, would not have a parliamentary majority anymore. So that's the message of this year or from that election and the polls that followed, peace can still be beaten. Yeah, definitely agree, Tobias. And I think there's probably two things that I've taken away. Firstly, is that, yeah, like you said, that the, the protest movements, um, particularly against uh, the change in law by the highest court, which are the courts in uh, Poland are deeply politicized. They've been deeply politicized by law and justice. And so the, the ruling in those courts to, to outlaw abortion, basically in all forms, with very, very few exceptions, to have some of the harshest abortion laws in Europe, um, was was a opinion was a opinion by the judge, which um, was definitely sort of in the control of, of law and justice. But the, the the scale of the protests, the strength of the feminist movement in Poland has been really shown. And I think what we saw is activists energized um, by this, you know, and it, we see it in a lot of countries, a lot of similar countries where it's a small um, victory or a, not necessarily a victory, but, a, a, you know, a big challenge to the sort of seemingly unstoppable regime can inspire more protest and more movement. And I think liberals, progressives, um, the left, even in, even the centre-right have all been really encouraged by the fact that, you know, Poland is divided. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's really easy to report it as, you know, peace still hold a tight grip. But actually, what we, what we learn is that Poland is deeply, deeply divided. And there are a lot of progressives out there in Poland right now looking at that as a really positive thing. And this is my second point, is that there will be a lot of polls looking very carefully at how things play out um, in the coming months in Hungary as opposition parties talk about a united front against Fidesz and whether um, the new the new vision by Hwovnia or PO or, or Levika decide that actually they want to do a, some co combined list ahead of future elections to make sure that they can beat peace, not just sort of as a separated unit, but ensure that peace don't get back into government and they can try and repair some of Poland's institutions, which have been so damaged by um, law and justice through uh, their interference with, with law and order. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point. And I would like to compare Serbia, Hungary and Poland here, where we have similar situations where Senorite or National Conservative Force um, does not really value a liberal society necessarily with independent media and independent courts. And um, about the 2022 national parliamentary election in Hungary, now that we're talking, I just got live the news that there will be a center-left MSZP, DK and Green and Liberal alliance against Viktor Orban. And that was a little bit the failure also we saw in Serbia. Uh, Gabriel, you said earlier, that we saw yeah, a not-so-democratic election. But quite frankly, Serbia is a democracy, very flawed, but it's, very, um, it's still a democracy. However, the opposition sim simply failed to unite um, around one platform and uh, fight Vucic as they should have, uh, in my opinion, my personal opinion. They uh, opposed the election, hoping for international recognition, which didn't really help. And um, then they lost the election, and that's how you come up with 60% for, for the leader. If you don't compete against the leader, that's what you end up with. And I guess one point for me to try and be a bit optimistic again is that what this all shows is that, you know, yes, they're flawed, um, 
aspects of a lot of uh, European countries still when it comes to democracy. But at the same time, I mean, even in Belarus, which is a hard dictatorship, elections do galvanize and they do, you know, promote and push people to get engaged. And then that has long-term effects as well, even if it's not, you know, a victory um, in the first instance. So it's still positive for me to see that even if, uh, you know, even if um, a lot of our listeners won't have been happy with the results, I know some some definitely would be still, um, those electoral events still, uh, still energize democracy in these countries, which I think is, you know, can give us all some hope for the future to try and be positive. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Welcome once again to the Europolect's History Corner. Feel free to pause the podcast, go grab a cup of tea, and put some logs on the fire for our special Christmas edition. And nothing says Christmas like a rigged election, so come with me on a trip to the Spanish National Parliament election of 1920, held just over 100 years ago by the time you're listening to this. Spain had been governed as a constitutional monarchy since the Bourbon Restoration of 1874, which had brought an end to a brief and tumultuous period of republican government. To ensure stability for this new regime, an institutionalised system of power rotation was introduced, known as the Terno Pacifico, the peaceful turn. This system was underpinned by a process of institutionalised vote rigging involving collaboration between the king, the interior minister, the main political parties of the restoration, and local political bosses who controlled local votes in return for political patronage. A regular rotation of power was established between the Liberal and Conservative parties, both of whom supported the Restoration government and continuation of the Bourbon monarchy. Smaller parties, and especially those which advocated republicanism or regionalism, were excluded in this system. The Terno Pacifico aimed to bring stability to Spain by ensuring that all sections of the middle and upper classes retained influence and access to patronage networks, while also allowing powerful interest groups to shape government policy. In effect, Spain was governed as an oligarchy rather than a system resembling a democratic form of government. Thus, every election between 1879 and 1916 saw the parliamentary majority rotate between the Conservatives and Liberals, as the electorate were deprived of any real opportunity to determine the outcome. This system held up for several decades, during which Spain experienced a period of relative peace and stability. The Liberal Party did use its allocated periods of government to advocate some civil liberties and voting rights, but continued to collude in the wider, anti-democratic system of enforced power rotation. By 1920, however, the Terno Pacifico had come under severe strain. The loss of Spain's overseas colonies to the United States in 1898 had struck a severe blow to the legitimacy of the restoration system, as did military failures during Spain's imperial ventures into Morocco in the 1900s, and a subsequent radical uprising in Barcelona in 1909. 
which was violently put down by the Spanish military. The economic prosperity that Spain had enjoyed during the final decades of the 19th century also began to wane. King Adolfo XIII, meanwhile, who came of age in 1902, further discredited the system by frequently interfering in the appointed governments. Opposition to the restoration system was increasingly voiced by Republicans, Socialists, Catalan and Basque regionalists, and even within the army, where officers were especially alarmed and hostile towards the growth of Catalan regionalism. So, having lost much of its support base, the system of institutional power sharing collapsed entirely in the 1910s. The Liberal Party split in 1913, as Manuel García Prieto formed the breakaway Liberal Democratic Party, and the First World War further exacerbated these splits within the system, each party taking a different stance. The Liberals generally backed the Allied powers, the Conservatives supported the Entente, and the Liberal Democrats advocated a more neutral position. These divides led to a series of short-lived governments formed by the three parties, including a brief unity government in 1917, and two snap elections in 1918 and 1919, neither of which produced a stable majority government. The system of consensual rigging had completely broken down, especially in Catalonia, where the state had lost its ability entirely to control election results. This occurred in the backdrop of intensified social protest by labour unions and radical organisations on both the left and right, which were increasingly able to win seats in Parliament despite the presence of such widespread voter fraud. However, after the end of the First World War, one last attempt was made to save the Terno Pacifico system and try to return to the period of stability Spain had previously enjoyed. An election was held on the 19th of December 1920, which was once again rigged, this time to ensure a period of government for the Conservative Party. By this point, the franchise included all men over 25, and voting was compulsory for all voters except men over 70, the clergy and judges. Women continued to be excluded from the electorate. The 1920 election produced the intended result, the Conservatives and their allies won 224 out of the 409 seats in the Congress of Deputies, the lower house of the National Parliament, giving them a slim majority, while the Liberal parties won 119 seats. Anti-system parties advocating republicanism, socialism, regionalism and clericalism were not entirely excluded, winning 59 seats between them. These included the Regional League of Catalonia on 14 seats, the pro-republican reformist party on 9 seats, the Radical Republican Party on eight seats, and the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, which is currently in power today, on four seats. However, the revived system of institutional election rigging successfully ensured that the Conservatives would be in a position to form a government unchallenged. Catalonia was placed under military rule, King Alfonso XIII began pursuing a more authoritarian approach, and it seemed that the Terno Pacifico could be reconstructed. Unfortunately for the beneficiaries of this system, its revival would prove short-lived. Incoming Prime Minister and Conservative Party leader Eduardo Dato was assassinated by Catalan anarchists just months after the election, and this was followed by a succession of Conservative Prime Ministers. These Conservative governments failed to address Spain's growing social and economic problems, and suffered another disastrous military defeat in Morocco in 1921 against an armed Berber uprising, known as the Disaster at Anwal. As planned, the next election, in 1923, produced a majority for the Liberal bloc, but the system by this point had lost all legitimacy. Shortly after, a military coup was staged by General Miguel Primo de Rivera, who went on to lead the country as a military dictator for the next seven years. The election of 1920, therefore, failed to substantially restore the Terno Pacifico system of institutional power rotation, 
which had for a fairly long period provided stability in Spanish politics, providing instead merely a three-year reprieve before its final demise in 1923. The tensions and conflict which brought the end of the Terno Pacifico would continue to haunt Spain in the coming decades, leading to the Republican Revolution in 1931, and ultimately, the Spanish Civil War. Well, on that happy note, I hope everyone has a good holiday break, and we will be back in the new year with even more historical elections. EuropeLex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. And everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of EuropeLex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. Dear listener, before we say goodbye for the last time in 2020, we just want to say a massive thank you to every single one of our listeners. You know, we've got a community of thousands from over 40 countries. We just want to say thanks for sticking by us through 2020. And we hope you've brought you a little bit of light and a little bit of joy amidst what's been, I'm sure, a difficult year for every single one of us. And, you know, all for our fantastic listening um, community, including you listening right now. A little over a year after we started doing these podcasts, we've done 25 episodes with over 40 guests from 20 countries, which is amazing. And it's all that we want your blessed to be about. And I think we've pretty much discussed news from every European country. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think like we even we had a complete segment on San Marino. Um, what other media outlet has had that? Um Prove me wrong, but I don't think anyone else. Um, and in total, we've had over 800 minutes um, of podcasts too. Uh, oh, God, Ewan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry that you we download onto your phone every week. I'm so sorry. But <laughs> also, I'm not. I, I am having a great time. And yeah, Same. just before we close this year, we just wanted to... Um, Gabriel and I say thank you to our absolutely amazing team that you guys don't see, um, obviously because you don't see us either, but you just don't hear and you won't know about unless you are one of the most dedicated fans who stays listening to the credits for just waiting to hear the after credits secret. Not all of you will know that we have an after credits secret in some episodes, but we just want to say the thank you for their hard work because you know, without them, the pod really would be nothing. And it would just be me and Gabe texting about politics. It wouldn't actually be, you know, all of this. So I just want to name them now. Um, and those are our producers, Rafael Peñarios and Leon Liesener, our script writers, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokouris, and Guillem Ferreira de Senda, and the author of our amazing music, of which you'll, of course, notice that there have been some new additions recently, Jose Alvarado. And finally, our amazing managing editor who makes all of us do all of the work, He's the one who makes actually all this thing happen. Without him, the wheels would come off. Um, and he tells us off when we waffle too much and rolls his eyes heavily at all the stupid jokes that we make. And so that is a polychronous Karampolas. Thank you so much for the work that you do. We are really, really, really grateful. Here, here. Um, so thanks again, dear listener, for your support. And we can't wait um, for what we're going to get up to in 2021. Um, see you soon. Have a great 
winter, Christmas, festive season. Take care of each other, stay safe, and um, have a very happy new year. I hope 2021 will be at least a little bit better than 2020. Please. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the EuroFLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuroFLX.eu um, and at EuroFLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLX podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. I'm going to start again. The Ewan's yawn there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>